kind of needed a secret weapon, as I called it. And Alex was that secret weapon. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in this week. If you like what you've been hearing here at the podcast, please take a moment, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps out. It helps others find the show and we need that. Thanks very much. Okay, this week is a guest I am really excited about, Mark Sinnott. Mark is a legendary big wall climber, journalist, and writer. He's done big wall expeditions around the globe, and his writing has appeared in Outside Magazine, National Geographic, Men's Journal, New York Magazine, and many other outlets. He's also a North Face global athlete, and in that capacity, he has had the chance to climb with, work with, and write about Alex Honnold. Today is the official release date of Mark's first book, The Impossible Climb, Alex Honnold, El Capitan, and The Climbing Life. It's an incredible documentation of Mark's personal journey with climbing, how that journey connected him with Alex, and the story of Alex's unbelievable free solo of El Cap. I'm sure many of you in this community have seen the amazing film Free Solo. Well, Mark's book tells that story and much, much more from a particularly authentic and real vantage point. It's a great, great read. I got connected to Mark through our mutual friend and friend of the pod, Tyler Hamilton, Mark and Tyler are childhood friends. Mark and I share New Hampshire as our native home state, and Mark still lives there with his family. It was great to make this connection. Check out Mark's book and check out our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Mark Sinnott. Mark, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Justin. So, Mark, you're kind of a transitive friend of the podcast in that one of uh, my friends and early guests, Tyler Hamilton, is a childhood friend of yours, and... Um, yeah, he put us in touch, and you have this amazing book coming out that we're going to talk about. But um, I, I just sort of uh, am thinking, gosh, what a dangerous combination you and Tyler Hamilton would be running around the mountains of New Hampshire as kids. Well, especially in the 1980s, yeah. when, you know, which was such an awesome time to grow up because back then all the parents – pretty much without exception, they were all the complete opposite of whatever a helicopter parent is. Okay. And so we did pretty much whatever we wanted <laughs> and, um, and no one cared and it was awesome. But yeah. We just like ran wild. Any, uh, any stories you can recollect that are safe to tell? Well, there, there's one, there's one story in particular about Tyler we were all part of the Wildcat ski team right. in uh, Mount Washington Valley, New Hampshire, which is, you know, how we, we, uh, we all know each other. And we used to have these classic potluck dinners, I think typically towards the end of the season. And basically the parents would be in the, in the lodge getting sloshed and the kids, <laughs> we would all grab uh, cafeteria trays Oh yeah, and we, and we would hike up the mountain and so it started out with, with cafeteria trays and then we, we started graduating and people started getting seriously into sleds that they could go, you know, and try to break, you know, like the sound barrier and stuff like that. <laughs> and we would hike way up the mountain and full kamikaze pitch black going down like black diamond trails. No headlamps, just, just sending no it. No headlamps, just <laughs> full 
death patrol and Tyler, I remember it was a race, of course. Yeah. And I remember Tyler was, was in the lead and looked like he had it and then just shot off the trail. And as I recall, he hit some kind of snowmaking equipment, like jagged metal pipes sticking out of the ground at high speed. And, you know, he was, he was pretty scrappy back then, just like he is now. And somehow, I mean, I think he was banged up a bit, but he, but he lived. And, uh, that was, um, a bit of a miracle actually, considering how fast he was going. Yeah. So many of those things that, you know, like you said, sort of the anti-helicopter parenting era, you know, so many of those things seem on retrospect, like they were hugely dangerous and maybe they were, but you know, we all survived and we're probably better for it. I, you know, I think so. And, and, and the, you know, the thing that's weird about it is that I might actually be a helicopter parent. I, I'm, <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to admit that, but I'm not, I'm not real bad, but I am a little bit like that to the point where my wife finds it a little annoying, I guess, you know, because of all the dicey things that I've done in my life, Sure, I think I'm overly tuned in to danger and I, I see it everywhere and I'm totally fine with it in terms of my own exposure, like totally okay with it. But when my kids are exposed to it, it makes me really uncomfortable. And so the whole situation that we had back in the eighties, like there's no way like that just, that wouldn't work for me now, you know, letting the kids just go absolutely feral like we did. Well, I definitely want to get to your kind of relationship with risk and how that's changed and, and maybe talking about your relationship with your children is, is a good way to do that. Uh, before we do, I just kind of want to educate the listener a little bit on on your background. I mean, I followed your career as a climber, as a pioneer of big wall climbing um, for quite some time, you know, mostly just as a, you know, New Hampshire athlete. Me being a New Hampshire native, I was always kind of drawn to your story and maybe just talk a little bit about, you know, what attracted you to climbing and what pushed you to want to be one of the guys climbing at the tip of the spear, putting up big walls all around the world. I, I guess the way that this started, Justin, is with my dad taking um, the family to Cathedral Ledge in North Conway right. to watch the climbers. And I guess what I'd say is that we went to the cliff far more than was normal for a young family, considering none of us climbed, um, like countless times. It was one of our, our main hobbies or my dad's hobby was to, to go and watch climbers. And he wasn't a climber. He just liked watching. Was never a climber. I don't think he ever climbed a pitch in his life, huh. but he brought me there. And that was just a bad idea on his part, unless you <laughs> wanted your kid to get into rock climbing, because my hero was Evil Knievel. And the reason why my hero was Evil Knievel was because when I was, you know, whatever age it was, my dad got me the plastic Evil Knievel on the stunt bike where you'd wind it up and then he'd zoom off and um, I would build, you know, jumps and all that kind of stuff. I wrote about this in the book. Yeah. And, um, and so my dad exposed me to rock climbing and at a certain point, uh, I just thought, okay, 
cool. Like, let's do this. The, uh, the, the problem was that, you know, I had no idea what, what I was doing. Sure. And talk about, talk about your kids doing super dicey stuff. Yeah. Some uh, of the stories you tell in the crazy. book about you and your buddy up on, I think it's cathedral or whiteface, you know, in your tennis shoes and no ropes and just, just going for it. <laughs> we, uh, we did do that, but we had a, um, we had a rope that we got out of the tool shed that was kind of like a glorified <laughs> clothesline. And with that rope and no gear and no clue whatsoever, we climbed within 50 feet of the top of Cathedral Edge, um, which is just messed up. Yeah. But we were obviously trying hard and we wanted to get it done. I can't even imagine nowadays if I was up at the cliff and I saw two kids doing that. But I've, I've been over some of the terrain that we covered, you mm-hmm. know, cause I, I know where we went and I would say that we were doing five, eight straight up, like five, eight rock climbing with Converse Chuck Taylors and a clothesline tied around our waist with no gear. We didn't even know. And then, you know, kind of my classic story that I tell a lot is when we were, we were up there and we were, we traversed out on this ledge out onto the main face. And then we ran into two actual climbers and, we had this moment of mutual disbelief as the two parties took each other in and we saw what a real climber looked like and all the, you know, fancy gadgets that he had and the snap links and the fancy rope. We're like, Whoa. And so, you know, I mean, the reason why I, I, I tell that story is, is because that's where it all started for me. And, you know, everything that I did, I can trace back basically to that, climb and afterwards I, I i started to identify myself as a climber and i i you know i was 15 years old i think and you know like a like a lot of youth like i was i was a little like squirrely in in the head and i was trying to f- figure things out and i kind of needed something to hang my hat on and, and honestly i was getting in a fair amount of trouble mm-hmm. I took the mischief to kind of like a whole new level. Um, you know, stories like my kids don't even know, but let's just say that I got in a significant amount of trouble. With sure. The law we could leave it at that. And um, I needed something, you know, to kind of provide some orientation and purpose mm-hmm. to my existence. And when I found climbing, that was it. And everybody always asks me, like why like what is it about it and i i just was talking to someone about this the other day and i guess i would say i don't know if i can explain it and i and i you know do a lot of reading and i've been studying this thing i've been immersed in the climbing world you know for most of my life now i don't know if anybody has ever done a good job of answering why exactly and what is it that you know compels us and and drives us but one thing that i do know is is that when i was a youth um i i i had like what i would describe as a little rat inside my head that was running around on this wheel and i couldn't get the 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 rat to stop doing its thing and the very first time that I climbed, so, you know, this, this, uh, this, this climb that I'm telling you about, yeah. I just remember this, this feeling of, of peace when I was on the rock. It's maybe the best way of describing it because mm-hmm. 
I was so focused on making sure I didn't fall off the cliff and kill myself that everything else, all the, um, you know, the crazy noise that was always inside my head, it just absolutely stopped. And I, and I think that I didn't realize it and I didn't put two and two together and go, Oh wow, I'm climbing. I'm like clinging to a cliff and like all that crazy noise just turned off. But I think that's a big part of what drew me into it so much is that, um, yeah, it allowed me to just be in the moment. And it was really hard for me to find that place. Otherwise, as like a 15 year old kid, as a teenager, um, you know, I just didn't have the maturity, you know, to, to go there mentally, but climbing took me there. And, and then as I got deeper and deeper into it, and I started doing bigger and more crazy climbs, like I, I went to Baffin Island and I did a big wall where we, we, we spent 39 days on the cliff. And one of the things I took away from that climb was that I went to that place where, where I was just in the moment for 39 days yeah. And it was absolutely awesome. And when I came back, I felt kind of like a new person. And I, I, I immersed myself so deeply in, you know, uh, like what you might call the now, that when I got home, I, I, I found that I was able to, to, uh, to be in that place even when I wasn't climbing anymore. Okay. And that was an awesome thing for me. And so, yeah, I mean, that's one thing that, you know, I haven't done an expedition on that scale, but but one of the things I struggle with is, you know, you go into the mountains or do one of these sorts of things and you're in that moment and then you come back. And I guess it's a little different as a, as a little bit older adult, but but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to kind of, one, you have some focus, but to me, I find it hard to like, re-entry can be hard, if that makes sense. Have you ever experienced absolutely. that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. But I remember on that, you know, on that trip in particular, I came back and sort of the intensity of the experience, because it was so intense, you know, because it was like living on the side of a cliff for yeah. 39 days. Yeah. It took a long time for it to dissipate. And I distinctly remember being home, like sitting basically in the same room that I'm sitting in now. Cause I live in a house where I grew up, I bought it from my parents. And, um, I remember sitting, you know, at my desk and looking out the window and feeling like I was still on the wall, you know, not, it, it's hard, hard to describe. Um, but it took a while, you know, for it to, to, uh, to dissipate. And I think that's a big part of why, I I just decided, you know, that my quest in life was going to be to try to climb as many of these walls as, as I possibly could because, uh, you know, I found something up there that I couldn't find in, uh, you know, sort of the normal um, day to day. For sure. And so along with that, you've, you're so skilled at capturing those stories, whether it's a story about your own climbing experience or the stories you've written about others climbing experiences. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into your writing and documenting these expeditions? Yeah. So I was a philosophy major in college. At Middlebury, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I went to Middlebury College in Vermont and, you know, you do a lot of writing in philosophy, 
basically you you read books you know and you write papers i think is you know the essence of it it's kind of that's part of the reason why why i chose it and we'd we'd get our reading list and then you would get your paper topics and without exception there was always one at the bottom that always said choose your own topic and i always went for choose your own topic because it was a lot easier to pull that one off when you hadn't done all of the reading. <laughs> and a lot of the reading was, was super dense. That's a pro and tip I, for any students that are listening here. Yeah. Sorry people, but, no, that's, good. Uh, but that's what I did. I'm not saying I set a great example for people, but I was um, pretty imaginative, I guess I would say, and good at making shit up. And, and I loved the um, sort of creative challenge of, of having to, uh, you know, write something good enough that I could get a decent grade from my teacher, even though I hadn't done the reading and I wasn't necessarily writing, you know, I knew what the broad topics were and then I would just explore them, you know, myself, like, this is what I think about it. You know, Uh I'm sitting up on the side of a mountain and I'm thinking about existentialism or whatever it is, you know, here are my thoughts. And I think that's, you know, where I, um, you know, kind of, had my my roots as a writer and when i and that so then at the end of of college i i was just planning to head off and go on like this climbing quest and and move to yosemite and my dad insisted that i go to the career counseling office because he had actually asked me what i was going to do for a career and i told him that i wasn't going to have one and i and I meant that because I actually thought that that was a thing and you could just sort of sort of not be, you know, um, part, you know, of yeah. uh, society. I was a little bit of a, of a, of a weird kid, I guess you could say. Well, he, he made me go. And when I was at the career counseling office, I got into this database, I guess it was. And, and it had all these alumni that had, you know, various occupations and some of them had like a little star next to it and it would say i'm willing to help out you know someone um you know like a a a fellow mid-grad and one of those those people was allison osius who um was an editor at climbing magazine okay and so i hit her up and i ended up getting an internship at climbing and i had never you know, I mean, I was doing writing like in school, like everybody does, but I had never really thought about writing as, you know, a possible job or a way to make money. When I got to Climbing Magazine, they said, hey, you're here, you're working for free. You know, it's three months or whatever it is. While you're here, why don't you try to publish an article? Mm-hmm. And and so I did. And I got paid, you know, whatever it was, like 50 bucks or but I got paid 50 bucks. Yeah, something. For writing something. And and it kind of planted the seed. And it was really that internship that set me on, you know, the, the path of, of being a writer. Um, I guess, uh, you know, it wasn't too long after that that I went and um, started doing some big climbs up in Baffin Island. And when I, I got back from one of those trips... And I was working as a carpenter in Colorado and I was framing houses and like tract homes and little subdivisions and like build a house and go to the next, you know, lot and build another one just like it. 
And um, what I was doing was I would do carpentry for a month or two, and then I would jump in my Subaru and head to Yosemite and climb walls. But when I got back from this big trip to Baffin Island, my dad, my dad said, hey, you know, this is kind of extraordinary what you've done. Maybe you should go out on a, um, like a lecture circuit. Yeah. And so I went to the library. It was before the days of the internet. I got out the, uh, the book that has the list of all the colleges and I got addresses for student activities offices. And then I made a list of uh, climbing gyms and outdoor stores. And I put together a one page flyer and I sent it out. And I think I got something like 20 or 25 shows lined up all over the country from wow. New England to the Southeast to like the Northwest, like all over. And so I called my boss and I said, Hey man, I'm out. <laughs> and I bailed and I got in my Subaru and I drove around for like two years doing living out of my car, doing talks and, um, and then writing um, articles for Climbing Magazine and other um, places like that. I started to get some sponsorship and, you know, I was working for myself. Yeah, it was coming eight, together. You know, 25, 26. And, you know, after having worked really hard as a carpenter, I was, you know, I figured out, okay, I can do one talk in an hour. I can make the same as I do in a week of doing construction. Yeah. And so I said, okay, that's it. That makes pretty good sense. This is my new, my new path. And, um, yeah, that's where it started. So let's fast forward several years and, and, and let's talk about this book you have coming out, the impossible climb, Alex Honnold, El Capitan and the climbing life, which is just a fantastic read. It's so compelling on so many levels. One, because, you know, it tells the story of this, this, climb that Alex did of El Cap, the free solo, all that, you know, the movie is so hot right now, the Oscar nomination and all of that. So you kind of provide a written account of that, but you also weave into it your own personal story, which we've talked about a little bit here, you know, your Baffin Island expedition and this sort of development of your own climbing career. But then you intersect with Alex, um, I think for the first time, in, was it the Borneo expedition in 2006? Is, is that right? Uh, 2009. 2009. Okay. So at that point, I mean, you're sort of at the top of your game, climbing career-wise and writing-wise, and then this, this young up-and-coming kid who's sort of um, – at that point, had he free-soloed Half Dome at that point? Had he, had he done that? Yes. Yeah, so he showed up in Yosemite. I think for you know, he he had he had been there a little bit in like two thousand six. Two thousand seven he showed up and he free soloed Astroman and the Rostrum. And that was the link up that was first done by Peter Croft, I think, in in nineteen eighty seven. Okay. And you know, there's there's this evolution that has gone on with free soloing. And, um, you know, I try to cover that in the book to mm -hmm. put Alex's climb in context and also to, you know, um, give credit, you know, to uh, all the pioneers that came before him that kind of laid the groundwork, um, as they always do for what, for what he was going to do. Um, but it took 20 years for someone to repeat what Peter Croft did, you know, back in 87, but Honnold did it 
but you know people were kind of dumbfounded because no one knew who he was it wasn't mm-hmm. like he was some veteran yosemite guy he just showed up he he had been trained in a in a climbing gym in sacramento and all of a sudden he's doing the hardest stuff that anybody's ever done in yosemite and then the next year 2008 he free soloed um the moonlight buttress in zion national park okay which is like a 1200 foot 512 d finger crack just absolutely sick and then he followed that up by doing the um northwest face of half dome and so at that point you know what he what he did the season before was he kind of matched the best stuff that had ever been done in the in the um you know in history of free soloing Mm -hmm. and then the next year he was like okay now i'm up in the ante but i'm not just gonna like up up it by one increment i'm gonna blow it totally out of the water and when he did the uh, the Moonlight Buttress, he just happened to do it on April Fool's Day. And at first, no one, myself included, believed that it was a real thing. We all thought it was some bizarre April Fool's Day joke because it was so far beyond what everyone thought the next step would be that no one believed it. Uh, yeah, and how does, how does that work in the climbing? How does that work in the climbing world? I mean, because, you know at least you know the story that's told in the book it seems like alex you know kind of does this stuff without a lot of fanfare just kind of you know trains for it in secret walks up does it and then walks away um you know so as far as like the who the hell is this guy how do we believe if it's real or not like what how's that sort of permeating itself through the climbing world at that moment you know like i said at first i i don't think people uh, believed that it was a real thing. Uh, but then eventually it came out and, yeah. you know, like someone called Alex and, and he's, and he said, yeah, yeah, I did do it. And, you know, and, and he, and he had, and he wasn't making it up. Sure. And, you know, one thing about, about our sport is, you know, for the most part, we, we, we take everything at face value. So all of a sudden uh, everybody's minds were blown. Like, who's this kid? And how is he able to free solo at a level that we weren't sure that we would ever see? Um, And so it was right around then that, um, you know, he started turning into this huge deal in the climbing world. He started getting sponsorship. And uh, one of the things that happened was he got signed up to become part of the uh, North Face climbing team. Mm Mm-hmm. And I had this expedition going to Borneo in 2009. And I, I, I think it was Conrad Anchor. might have been, you know, like the athlete manager or the two of them together. But I think it was Conrad who, who made the ask. And he was going on this trip with me. And he said, hey, Mark, what do you think about us bringing Alex Honnold on this trip? Sure. And, you know, back then... I think I was more strict than I, than I am now. I'd had a good run with all these trips and I had this rule that I wouldn't go on a trip with someone unless I really knew them well. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Okay, special announcement coming up on March 8th is the 30th annual John Raffato Business Startup Challenge. 
This competition, hosted by the Blackstone Launchpad and the College of Business at the University of Montana, will feature 12 elite student teams pitching new and exciting business ideas to a panel of 50 hand-picked judges in a crowd made up of over 300 business professionals and Montana community members. Teams compete for up to $50,000 in awards while having the opportunity to network with venture capitalists, early-stage investors, investment bankers, economic developers, corporate executives, and successful entrepreneurs. Come be inspired by the new generation of Montana entrepreneurs. Tickets are $15 and available online through the John Rafato Business Startup Challenge website. We'll post a link to that website in the show notes. Check out this event. It's my favorite of the year. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Willey, Director of Marketing and Communications at the University of Montana College of Business. And you're listening to A New Angle. Um, I had, I've, you know, had some bad experiences, as I recount in, in the book, with yeah. just interpersonal dynamics and, and so forth. And so I just had this rule, like, I'm only going with people that I really know, that I've vetted, that I know I get along with, that I want to be with. And that, you know, I trust and all that kind of stuff. And so I, at first when Conrad, I remember my initial reaction was no possible way. Am I doing that? Like, I don't, I don't even know the guy. I I think, you know, he's, he's gotta be kind of crazy and, um, you know, I have no idea if I would get along with him. Um, and I, and I, I remember Conrad saying to me like, well, you know, really think about it because you know the north face wants to get him out you know on a a big trip this year and this one is the perfect fit like of all the trips that are that are going Mm -hmm. and i i kind of under understand or understood that part of it too which is still going on today when 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 a climber you know gets signed up to the team they they want to build marketing around that person and the way that the North Face does that is by sending us out on these trips and doing photography and video and that kind of thing. And so it was one of those things where I thought, okay, like I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not totally comfortable with it, but I'm being encouraged by people who, you know, I want, you know, to um, continue to support me. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, you know, like let's do it. And yeah, so we, so we went on this expedition and, you know, as I explain in the book, what I, what I found is that, you know, before I even did any climbing with Alex, I, 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 I found that we had a, a bit of a kindred spirit. And I, I think the, the, uh, the essence of it is that we both really enjoyed philosophical debate and, you know, just, talking about stuff and um ideas and exploring things like any topic it's just you know something that i've always um you know like to do and i've always loved to play the devil's advocate Mm -hmm. just for the sake of it and i found that alex was kind of the same way and so uh, we just had these these awesome um, conversations and it was a great way to uh, pass the time and there's tons of time to kill yeah. when you're on expeditions. So, so we, you know, we connected in, in that way. And, you know, I think Alex was interested and excited in doing exploratory climbing. 
And that was something that I had developed as a bit of a specialty is like finding random crazy places that people hadn't, you know, fully explored. And I was at a point, you know, you were saying I was like at the peak of my powers, but I was actually already on the downward side of the, the climbing arc. I think you could say, sure. I, I, w- I was reluctantly, well, I think I wasn't fully admitting it to myself at that point, but I, I was um, not climbing as well as I had in, in the past, but I still wanted to do these, these, you know, these big climbs and these first ascent. So I kind of needed a secret weapon as I called it. And Alex was that secret weapon. And we, we really used him in that way on the climb. Like when we, we got to this one patch on the wall that was totally sick, like no cracks, like no protection, nothing like overhanging. And we just handed the rope over and said, Hey, Arnold, why don't you get up this thing? Yeah. Which, uh, Which he did. So, so it was a bit of a, uh, a symbiotic relationship, I think you could say. And, uh, and we continued it. And, uh, and then the next year, you know, in the next several years, so we, we ended up going on four expeditions. Um, and those were Alex's first four um, international climbing expeditions. And as you're kind of, you know, like you said, uh, I like how you put that, you're sort of past the peak of your powers and, and Alex is, is in that moment on the rise toward the, his peak. And he's not only getting into these expeditions and you're sharing that and bonding over that, but he's, he's, he, you can probably at some point you get a sense for he's got his sights on something really big in the free soloing space and the LCAP objective. Um, and you're on the inside, right? At this point, like you're one of the first folks that sort of is aware that this, this project is, is, is on his radar in a real way. Yeah, we, we talked about it on that very first trip. In fact, the first time I sat down with him, I think I asked him about it Hmm. and you know, it's, it might seem awkward and weird, but Alex, Alex is a very unique person and you know, the, the essence of it is that he, I, I would describe him as someone who is um, totally open. It's like, you know, you, we've all met people where they, they're, they're sort of like trying to affect a certain personality. They're like yeah. projecting like who they want to be. Mm-hmm. And they're, and it's not real. Like some people are like kind of fake. Some people are really fake. Some people are just a tiny bit fake, but most of us are pretty tuned into that kind of stuff. And, you know, we could, we could tell, and, you know, you meet people where they're totally real and we all love people like that, especially if they're real and they're positive, positive people, you know, upbeat, that kind of thing. Absolutely. And that's kind of how Alex is. He, He's um, totally real. And you, you learn that as soon as you talk to him. Like there's no um, layers, you know, that he's put over himself. I don't know how he got there or if he's always been like that. You know, I've been working my whole life to peel layers away to get down to what I call the, the real mark. Mm-hmm. 
I don't know how close I am, but I know with, with Alex, like when you sit down and you talk to him, you're talking to the real Alex Honnold and, um, you know, be, because he's so frank and open and he, and he doesn't filter, he really, I think he does more so now, but back then he really didn't filter anything. Like, this is what I think. And I'm just going to say it. Sure. And, um, I really, um, appreciated that, you know, that aspect of him. It also made me comfortable just asking him straight out, Hey, you've done half dome. You've done moonlight buttress. You've sold all these other cliffs in Yosemite. Boy, it really does seem like El Capitan is the Holy grail. And actually none of us have ever, ever thought of it. No one, no one really had. I mean, I think Dean Potter, you know, maybe a little bit, but back then I don't even know if it was on his radar either. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, no one thought about it. No one was like, Oh, when is someone going to solo out cap? It was just one of those things that was so out there, um, that none of us considered it. But when I was sitting there with him, I thought, I wonder like if he has his sight set on that or if he's thinking about it. So I, you know, I just asked him and, um, and he didn't, you know, he didn't care. He didn't, he didn't, he, he didn't mind. And, um, I think what he said, I mean, I, I recounted in this, this in the book, but I think he said something to the effect of, yeah, you know, I've thought about it, but it's way too scary. And, uh, you know, it's like, it's, it's not in the cards. Something right. But that's kind that. of a way in, right? That's a way in to say, I've thought about it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was in 2009. And, you know, I think what none of us realized was that he was thinking about it more than just a little bit. Right. And that he was, you know, kind of laying it out for himself as, as a goal. And, you know, so that's, you know, kind of the main thread of the book really is tracing that through from when I first met Alex to, you know, the completion of the climb. Uh, so it was 2009 to 2017 mm -hmm. and, uh, the journey that he took to get there, which is just extraordinary. And so big, a big theme, uh, one of the more, I think, compelling themes of the free solo movie is, you know, capturing, you know, what Jimmy and Chai and the team went through as far as dealing, grappling with the ethics of to film or not to film and then to film in what style and, and what if he falls. And you, know, you touch on this in the book. You go through a, a similar process, um, both with the reporting for, for Nat Geo and also probably in the background with this with this book. Can you talk about kind of your feelings about the endeavor? Uh, at this point, Alex is, 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 is an important friend to you, and, and you're sort of watching him take on this thing with, with a, a, f a fair bit of uncertainty, to say the least. Yeah, when it, when it, first, when it first became real, when, when Alex said, actually i'm i'm going for this mm -hmm. and i think that was 
probably like at the end of 2015, maybe the beginning of 2016. When I found that out, I, I didn't really know what to think. I, there was a part of me that thought, wow, like this seems like a really bad idea. You know, Alex calls me Mr. Safety. Yeah. I've played his foil before. You know, one of the topics that we would we would discuss, you know, when we were on the trips was risk. And I would play his foil. He would tell me, yeah, what I do is not dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, and I would just go head to head with him on that. And so I thought, you know, maybe I'm the person to try to talk him out of it. But... I, I, I quickly decided, no, that's, you know, first of all, I knew Alex well enough to realize that I wasn't going to be able to talk him out of it. I knew he'd been dreaming about it for so long. And I thought to myself, you know what, it's, it's, it's our, it's our own deal to decide how much risk we want to take. You know, I think maybe this is an excessive amount of risk on Alex's part, but there's probably people in my family who have thought that I took excessive risk at certain points, but I didn't see that. I didn't think that I was, and I would never want anyone to tell me what I can and can't do in terms of risk-taking. And, you know, Alex is an adult. This is a dream. He's damn good at what he does. He's obviously incredibly conscientious about the way that he's going about this. So, so, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to throw a monkey wrench and, you know, try to screw this up or anything Mm -hmm. and I'll do what I can, um, to support him. And, and very quickly I thought to myself, I, I want to tell the story and, um, I want to, you know, help document what he's doing. And, um, and I think that was the same for, for Jimmy and the filmmakers. And I described this in the book, I think Jimmy felt like, well, he went through, you know, a lot of soul searching of his own, um, in terms of trying to decide that, do I want to be part of something like this? And I, I think he ultimately decided that, well, probably that he didn't want to be but that Alex was going to do it regardless. Right. Alex wanted it filmed and documented, you know, and that's a whole story in its own, but you know, the modern climber uh, is different from, you know, like the climbers back in the eighties and nineties where, you know, everything had to be done privately and, you know, you couldn't say anything about what you were doing because you'd be ridiculed and all that. Now we're in the, uh, you know, the age of social media where it's like, okay, to kind of spray a bit about what you're doing and we're all pros and we kind of have to spray. It's part of the job. And, and Alex was unabashed about it. Hey, like this is, you know, my magnum opus and I want it recorded and there will be a film made about this. And, you know, if Jimmy's not going to do it, you know, I know for a fact there were other people who were lined up, who were going to do it. Right. And I think Jimmy decided that he, you know, might be in the best position to do it right. 
and to do it safely and and um, and to capture capture it in the right way and so um, you know we all kind of ended up in that position where we were um, using that rationale to you know justify the fact that we were there you know documenting something where Alex you know if things went wrong could possibly die I mean that seems like you know, I'm talking to a, a philosopher in a way about this. Like, that seems like a very sound rationale. This is happening whether you're involved or not. And at that point, you know, as a friend, it probably makes sense to, to you know, you, you as far as the, the written documentation, Jimmy, as far as the, 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 the video documentation, you are the most qualified people to one do the work but also are the people Alex is most comfortable with and is the most experienced with so that that seems to that seems to make good sense yeah it could have been a very different equation if if it had been the other way around and um and Alex was iffy about whether he wanted it documented yeah you know in the in the documentarians were kind of like pushing it on him like oh no we really need to be there uh, but it wasn't like that at all it was the opposite of that and um alex wanted the story told he he had to grapple with that it ended up being you know difficult to uh to do what he did and that's you know something that i that i talk about in the book one of the things that came out is that i don't think Alex fully understood this maybe before this project, but um, it, you know, eventually revealed itself that he wasn't comfortable being filmed and being watched by people when he was on the edge. Yeah, the Boulder problem was kind of the the the, the epitome of that, right? Uh, the Boulder problem, but maybe even more so the um, the free blast. Oh, the, that's the slabby section early on. Just two slab sections on pitch five and six. And he, uh, you know, though that section got in his head, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. because there's no holds and it's all just poise and balance, which is not that bad when you have a rope because you're not worried that you're going to die. And, you know, uh, climbers are good at, finding the poise when they need to you know when you're like as a skilled climber that's something that you need to be able to do mm -hmm. and but when you have a rope it's like okay like this is a little scary i could slide down the wall it's gonna get scraped up a little bit but i'm not gonna die and i'm just gonna put that out of my mind and i'm gonna climb to the absolute best of my ability well to do that without a rope on a slab where there's nothing to grab onto was a monumental um, obstacle to Alex, you know, achieving um, this climb. And I think what he what he discovered was that it was very hard for him to find the right um, state of mind when he was being observed. Mm. And um, and so the first time that he tried, the climb, which I think was in November 2016, 
you know, he set off at like four in the morning or four thirty or something. He was climbing by headlamp and we, we thought this is it. Like he's doing it. And he got up to that spot and there was a, a cameraman hanging on a rope there. And Alex wasn't feeling good and he, he wasn't in the zone. And what he told me afterwards was that if, if the, if there hadn't been a cameraman there that any, any, and if he didn't have the awareness that there were a lot of other people that were watching and, you know, had certain expectations of him that he probably would have climbed down a bit and found a good ledge and gotten his shit together and then gone back up and gotten it done. Right. And he told me that he had um, been in that position before on some of his climbs where he had to, he had to pull it together, but he said, you know, knowing that he was being watched and that it was all being recorded was just too much. Mm. And it put him in a, in a mental headspace that he, that he didn't like. And so, so he bailed out and, um, you know, that ended up being, you know, one of the biggest challenges of the, of the whole thing for him. And then also, you know, for the, uh, for the filmmaking team. Right. How to film without, without influencing his decision-making, his attitude on any of that, right? How to sort of be invisible, but also get the shots. Yeah. And they were, they were communicating about it. Mm -hmm. And Alex, um, you know, Alex said, Hey, like, um, I'm comfortable here, 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 and here. It's basically like the whole route. And here are the places where I'm not comfortable. And so they came up with this compromise where they set up, cameras um that were remotely operated and there was no one there and um and in the film you know you 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 can see where those those spots are so they found a way to do it and you know what that's what alex wanted you know he uh he 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 wanted it you know to be documented Mm -hmm. and and you know what he's stoked you know i've 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 talked to him recently and, you know, he was talking about going to the IMAX and watching the film. Like, I I think he told me he's seen it like five or six times. Oh, wow. And he, he's into it, you know, like, and it, and it's an awesome thing and, uh, he'll never do it again. I don't think. And who knows if anyone will, hopefully not. Um, but it's documented every which way for posterity and that's kind of that's kind of an awesome thing. Yeah, and you know, you are a big part of that and this book that you have coming out, The Impossible Climb is just such an incredible documentation uh, not only of that climb but your relationship with Alex and the journey that sort of brought you two together. It's 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 super compelling read uh, and I encourage everybody to to check it out, particularly if you're, you know, if you're, if you're fans of climbing, but if, if you, if you watched free solo and enjoyed that, um, there's so much in the book that just, um, takes that story and goes even so much deeper. Um, Mark, I am incredibly thankful for your generosity of time. We're catching on our Friday evening and I want to be sensitive to your time and let you get back to your family. Um, do you head out on book tour soon? I know the book's coming out March 5th, which is the day we'll release this podcast. Um, what sorts of things are you gearing up for to uh, prepare for release? Well, um, I do have a 
a book tour and um i'm gonna be in um yeah a bunch of different places i I start in boston then i go i think to portland oregon then to boulder colorado then i'm doing a couple um, different bookstores in san francisco then i think i go from there to dayton ohio and then i'm going to dc to national geographic and um, let's see, Providence, Rhode Island, and Burlington, Vermont. So I'm going to be busy. I guess I, I will admit that this is not my favorite part of the whole process. I'm sure. You know the um, the promotion. Um, you know of the work. I mean, I love going out. I do tons of speaking, and I love you know connecting with people. Um, but the the selling of the book is. Um, not as fun as the writing of it and the <laughs> capturing of the story, I guess I would say. But, um, you know, I feel like I have actually come a long way as a as a writer. And so I do want people to read this because I I, I put a, a lot into it and I love um, what I'm doing and I want to continue what I'm doing. So so I want this to be a successful enterprise and uh yeah, you know, we didn't talk much about the family, but I do have four children. Yeah. So there's some commitment there in terms of of making it work and um I'm highly motivated to uh to not um come up short because yeah, I have people relying on me to uh to be successful. For sure. Well, I think the book will be hugely successful, and we were, we were honored to have some of your time to talk about it. doesn't sound like the book tour is bringing you to Missoula, but maybe uh, maybe if we get enough listeners to this episode, we can convince you to make a stop out here and sign some books. Yeah. Well, I would actually love to come through and to uh, hang out with, with Tyler and to do some skiing Yeah, and uh, to meet you in person. Um, so... We'll keep that on the back burner, but you know, thanks for inviting me to do this, and it's been an enjoyable conversation. And um, you know, maybe we'll do it again someday. I just have one more question, Mark. So, a, a couple buddies here in Missoula are um, North Face teammates of yours. These are friends of mine, Mike Foot and uh, Seth Swanson, who I think you know. Um, I was talking to Footy the other day, and he said, you know, at a, at a North Face. Um, athlete function or something you guys were kind of going on the room brainstorming next frontier adventures and and at least mike told me that that the adventure you threw out there was uh, a trip to the moon <laughs> <laughs> is that really on the radar screen i think i well you know what it is i and i and the reason why i tossed it out was i wanted to stake it out with the north face yeah and maybe that was, I mean, there might've been some people that, that think that it was silly, but when and if that comes around and we get to the point where, you know, space travel is actually possible for civilians. And I think we're actually pretty close we're pretty to that. Pretty darn close. And yeah. I do, yeah. I do subscribe to the idea of this um, singularity coming soon and the, the fact that technology is evolving at this exponential rate that's beyond what we even realize. Mm-hmm. And so I think we might get there quicker than any of us realize. And when and if that expedition comes up, 
I want people to know like, oh yeah, you know what? Sinnott was the one he did kind of stake that out. He sort of said it was his idea. Yeah, I like it. But I'm, but I'm actually thinking that, uh, that I could talk my way onto one of these SpaceX ships as a journalist and go up there and tell their story and document it. And, um, probably shouldn't say too much more beyond that, but I did a talk for the, uh, for the X prize. And I met some of those guys and I said, Hey, like, what do you think? Like, can I go, can I go to space? And they, they said, yes. (laughs) Well, maybe that's book number two, Mark. Yeah. Um, you know, I have book two, two in the works. Okay. Um, we'll just kind of leave it at that. But, uh, but book three, maybe there we go. Um, but yeah, like that would be the ultimate. I mean, it would be better to go to Mars, I think, than to go to the moon because people have been been to the moon and there is a peak on Mars called the Olympus Mons, which is 100,000 feet. 100, so it's feet. three and a half times bigger than Mount Everest. And I'm thinking, you know, we get up on that thing, you know, and we, we ski it, you know, in the, um, <laughs> in the sand or whatever. We'll have to get special skis for it. But yeah, no, I'm... Uh, I'm always dreaming big and uh, I've had a lot of good adventures, but all they have done is make me hungry for more, I guess I would say. Yeah. So I'm constantly scheming and we could talk for a long time about all the stuff that I, that I still want to do. And um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's the journey and um, I hope it continues for a long time. Awesome. Well, I do too. Mark, it's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to keeping in touch. I look forward to uh, promoting this book in any way we can here at the podcast. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot, Justin. I appreciate it. Okay. Hope you enjoyed that conversation with Mark. Super compelling guy, great writer, and his book, The Impossible Climb, is amazing. I encourage you to check it out. Okay. Next week, Wilmot Collins, the mayor of Helena and a Liberian refugee. If you haven't heard Wilmot's story, you're probably thinking, how on earth do I connect the dots between Liberian refugee and mayor of Helena? Well, buckle up and tune in next week because it's an amazing story and I'm excited to bring it to you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And remember that A New Angle was brought to you by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. By now, you all know that they're big and they pretty much sell everything electrical you would ever need. But what you might not know is that they hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about job opportunities at CED, visit cedcareers.com. It's a great website name. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Comzar, Elizabeth Willie, executive producer, Stefan Borsum, producer, Aidan Morton, and interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Before we go, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.